BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We're here with a special extra edition of the Josh Marshall Podcast. I have my co-host, David Tainter, here. Hey, Josh. And we're also joined by Representative Ruben Gago from hey. the 7th District of Arizona. That's right. Thanks for joining us. So, yeah, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna talk about a lot of things. We're going to talk about your background. We're going to talk about uh, what is going on on Capitol Hill. We're going to talk about the midterm elections, which going to determine what's going on on Capitol Hill next year. We're going to dig into all of that stuff. But before we do that, you David, know what time you know what time it is. Yeah, it's it's time cuz you know, we're going to talk about the world's greatest I was going to say world greatest iced coffee, but it's really like the world's yeah, greatest no coffee. Yeah, no qualifier of iced. Yeah, thing. no, totally. So, born in Brooklyn and brewed in the Bronx, Grady's is New York's favorite cold brew, but you can have it delivered to your door no matter where you live. Their cold brew kit includes everything you need to create smooth, velvety cold brew at home. All you have to do is add water. No French press, no mess, no baristas. You save money, too. You get 36 cups of gourmet cold brew for only $30. That's less than a buck a cup. And shipping's free. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code T. P.M. That's Grady's Coldbrew.com with promo code TPM. Sounds good. I've literally had like three cups already today, so I had to take a break this, this <laughs> yeah, afternoon. Yeah, is our is our is our office supply holding out okay? Uh, dwindling. If you're listening to this, Grady, you know. Yeah, you know, you know what, <laughs> you know to, what do. to do. You Shameless. know what to do. Are you are you a coffee drinker? I am. Yeah, I'm part Colombian, so absolutely. All right. Yeah. That's so. Do you have? Do you have like a fair? Just kind of a million different kinds of coffees. Or a million different types of coffee. On Capitol yeah. Hill. Uh, we, we used. You know, we have a. Uh, we have a, a very like high tech. Uh, coffee machine here in the office, oh. but since we started having Grady's, no one can be no one can be bothered. <laughs> it's kind of lonely these yeah. days. So, tell us about you are. You are in your second second term. Second term. That's second right. Second term in in Congress, and before that, you were in the state legislature. Yep, Arizona State Legislature, great training grounds. <laughs> well, it's you know when we were you and I were talking a month or two ago, uh-huh. and and we were talking about how Arizona. Ten years ago, five years ago, Arizona was the future, but a lot of us outside of Arizona didn't quite know that. Right. And there's so many trends, and and I don't mean, well, so many different things that have been happening in Arizona in recent years that presaged what we're seeing Mm -hmm. nationwide right now. So before we get to that, though, you are, I guess you're almost 38, 39 years old? 38. 38, Okay. Tell us your story, personal story. Where do you, like, literally where do you come from, and where do you come from metaphorically? Tell us the whole, you know, the life story. <laughs> so, uh, well, I'm, originally I'm born and raised in Chicago. Um, oh, I didn't realize yeah, that. And, I didn't realize you weren't, like, born in, in Arizona. No, 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 and very, very few people are. Um, lived for a couple years in Mexico. My dad uh, is Mexican. My mom is Colombian. Uh, we uh, moved there after I, li- you know, after probably like four years uh, I was four years old, and we lived on a farm over there and did uh, raised uh, chicken, beans, stuff like that. The farm eventually went under, and we moved back to the United States. Uh, you know, very working class existence on South Side Chicago. Dad was a carpenter, mom was a uh, secretary. Uh, eventually, uh, my father started to start a construction company, uh, which went did well, and then did not do well, and then we went kind of on the sideways of the American dream. And fortunately, we uh, uh, he left. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was up to my mom to raise me and my three sisters. We, um, you know, had some struggles. We had to move in with family for a while. Uh, eventually she, uh, she got it together and she kept the family together. We worked hard. Uh, we believed in the American dream. I worked my butt off, uh, to make sure I could get scholarships to college. And I was lucky enough to get scholarships to college and, and to go to Harvard of all places. Uh, and 
once I got there, I continued to work. Uh, I was a worker. I've been working working my whole life since I was the age of 14. Uh, so even in high school, I was working in a meatpacking factory. At what point did you did you did you move to Arizona? At what like what? After, in the yeah. chronology. Uh, when I was 25, after I returned from Iraq, I moved Got to it. Arizona. So tell us that, because you, we, haven't, we haven't talked about your yeah. military service yet. Where does that fit in with college, and what's the, what's the chronology? Well, what happened is, so I get to, to Harvard, and look, I, I come from a very working, class, very working class family, and I didn't quite fit in right away, um, to be honest. And uh, I actually ended up getting kicked out of Harvard for uh, a year. And in that time, I decided that I wanted to do something that I had always wanted to do, and that was also join the military. So I actually went and joined the Marine Corps, uh, joined the Marine Corps Reserves, uh, went to boot camp, went to school of infantry training, and then got back to uh, got accepted back into Harvard. And I uh, was, you know, working. In- Is that one of those things where sort of like you're, like you're kicked out, but like they say, you know, go. Yeah, keep yourself in line for a year, and you can sort of like Reapply. ask to come back. Exactly. Yeah, it's I came exactly. within a hair's breadth of having to be <laughs> in college. So I, I've thought a lot yeah. about it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's exactly. Yeah. So they yeah. tell you take a year off and then reapply and make sure you actually yep. were doing yep. something broke that year. And so uh, I did that and uh, went back to school and you know worked and uh, and then was also uh, a reservist. So I did one week in a month, two weeks a year. Got activated uh, my senior fall, uh, and then uh, which was. Not a war activation. Ended up going to Okinawa, Japan. Uh, but after that, after graduation, I got activated one more time and sent to Iraq. Does that mean that 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 college was pushed back for another year? Yeah. So okay, so you activated. So you got to be- leave like in your senior year, come back for your senior year. Correct. Right. Yep. Got it. Got it. Got it. So I've, I mean, I, gra- I didn't graduate college. So I think I was like twenty four or something like that. And then um, one more activation sent to Iraq. Uh, it was a very hard duty. I was in the infantry. Tell it, what ye- what years were were you there? I was there in two thousand five. Uh, All right, so like the right post. It was pre surge, height of the insurgency, and we were uh, by the Syrian border in a city called Haditha. Uh, I was enlisted Marine uh, infantryman, and uh, it was it was just not it was a horrible deployment. You know, I lost my best friend. I lost you know. Um, I think a total of 23 to 24 guys in my company alone, which is one of the high, one of the highest casualties of the war, and largely because it was just an incompetence uh, at the administrative level. We didn't have armor. We didn't. I mean, the, we were outnumbered. We were trying to cover a territory the size of Virginia with you know only a thousand something men in the battalion. It was it was ridiculous. Um, and while I was you know when I returned, I wasn't really in. I would say the mindset to even settle down and get a job. I was uh, suffering a lot from uh, PTSD, just dealing with the war in general. And how long were you, like, in country? How long were you I in think country? I think it was uh, MO seven months. Okay. But it was all, it's all combat. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, you know, while I was in uh, Iraq, my uh, uh, girlfriend moved to Arizona. And when I got back, I, you know, needed to uh, get back on my feet. And so I moved to Arizona because the only place I could really uh, move to where I had anybody that I could even have a roof. Let me ask you just on the on the because I am one of those many people who you know, I I was writing about the Iraq war, every, you know, right. kind of like but I was not I was not there. Right. Um when you when you say that there were uh, uh 25 or 26 fatalities were those were those mainly in situations like active firefights, IEDs? Like, just give us a sense of what was. It was mostly IEDs. There's okay. a couple of active firefights. Um, uh, I would say that um, uh, I would probably, I'd have to go back and look, but probably 18 deaths were from IEDs and six were from active firefights. So a lot of this is is fighting insurgents who you're not really seeing but mm-hmm. booby traps and in the midst of p- patrols stuff it, like that yeah mostly it was in route to the fight um so when my uh buddy died uh we were actually on our way to uh clear a town uh and then the other guys in my platoon uh got hit the t- we my platoon got hit two day two times in uh sorry two times in two days uh, and the first one was a suicide house where a bunch of the 
insurgents were um, holed up and, and basically trying to kill as many people as possible. And the second day, uh, or two days later, uh, is when we got hit by an IED. Wow. So, and I, I'm sorry, I say we, my platoon. I was actually in a different vehicle. I was in the vehicle in front of, my vehicle rolled over the IED and it, hit, it went off on the vehicle behind me instead of on me. Wow. So, so what, got it. So, okay. So you come back to Arizona. Right. You're, you're, I guess you're still in the reserves, but you're not deployed. Correct. Anymore. Um, and you're getting your bearings back right. in, back in the United States. So when did, when did you first run for office? I first ran for office in 2010. And prior to that, I mean, the, I mean, the reason I got into politics is because of the, the war, when we got back, the VA wasn't ready for us. Um, I, and like I went to the VA and uh, they wouldn't, uh, you know, they'd give me some service, but they wouldn't help me to a certain extent because in their because my paperwork hadn't caught up to me and they said that I hadn't been in combat. When there was actual- That must be galling. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's not only that, but I mean, there was actual video of me and, and my guys in combat. They made a whole biography about us. And I had other friends of mine that- were even more messed up than I was, and messed up not the clinical word, but they had the effects of PTSD. And when the VA told them, like, you weren't really in combat, they actually started questioning whether they were actually really in combat or not. And we had to you know, have a lot of conversations with them. How much, I, obviously, the, the, the issues with the VA is a, is a vast issue. Mm-hmm. How much of that is the fact that you have the Pentagon, the Department of Defense, and then you have this other bureaucracy agency that is the VA even though right in a sense why aren't you know why aren't they one thing is that is that you know part of it just yeah. just too kind no you definitely don't want it to be the the one you don't want definitely want don't want to be the one thing because if you put it at the one thing they're going to value the warrior versus the veteran the person right. who's that still makes in sense. That makes sense. especially when you're dealing with tax cuts all, that are happening all the time the problem is is that like we want everything on the cheap in this country we want our war on the cheap and we want our veterans also on the cheap you just can't get it. you can't have it all that just doesn't work that way if you want to send us to war properly equip us and properly pay us and properly train us and then when we get back give us the services we need to reintegrate back into life instead what we've done is we've never fully funded the VA we've never fully given the VA everything they need to make sure that we're going to be re- integrated back into life the best way possible. Um, and it's a huge organization. So obviously there's going to be some problems, but there's certainly going to be problems if we keep on trying to do this on the cheap. And that's what's been happening for, for a long time. I know late in the Obama administration, this became a big issue. It was, you know, mm-hmm. uh, President Trump made a huge issue of it. And it, have there been, and, and, and going forward, there's this whole question of privatization right. of, of VA. But in the in the nuts and bolts sense, from your experience and now being a member of Congress, has has the ball at least been moved forward over oh, the last four yeah. or five years? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, definitely from I would say starting two thousand and six, some of the changes started under Bush. Uh, President Obama really ramped it up and really created uh, you know a lot of the reforms and changes that we needed. Towards the end, you know, I think you heard and saw a lot of abuses that were were not. You know, symptomatic of all of the VA, but we're we're given up as a good uh, example. Um, right now, I'm I really fear that the VA is going to be privatized. You know, Donald Trump has zero concept about well anything, but in particular, he has zero concept right. of how the VA works. Um, and uh, you know, he honestly should be the last person that even touches it. And that's why it's actually more dangerous. That's why you have these like phony Cook brother organizations like Concerned Veterans for America that are getting their hooks into it because they're essentially going to try to, and when, you know, what they're going to do, and this is what people don't understand, so they're not going to privatize all of the VA. They're going to go and they're going to take up the most profitable parts of the VA and privatize those and then basically keep the least profitable parts of the VA, which is going to make it basically go bust. You know, because the last thing that Koch brothers and the Concerned Veterans for America want is a government program that is very popular, runs well, because that is fearful to them. Now, is when you say, you know, profitable in the least, does that mean like, uh, you know, 50 year old veteran veteran who doesn't have a lot of, you know, a lot of things, but, you know, kind of regular health services versus someone who's had like a devastating industry uh, injury and needs, you know, intense involvement like right. forever is they that would, what we're talking they about they would do they essentially what they would be doing is for profit triage where they would basically say you know these types of people 
that are very healthy should be treated outside the VA because it's quicker and it's more efficient. Uh, and then the, only the serious cases will be taken care of by the VA, which would balloon the cost of the VA. Uh, or they would do simple things, or like profitable things, like ortho, like orthopedics, right? Um, you know, you know. Oh, you have to have something fixed. We're going to just outsource you to somebody else, and only the really hard cases would the VA do. And that that's when you're going to start having you know uh, uh, huge waiting periods. You're going to have people that are, are going to be waiting forever. Uh, you're going to have ballooning costs that would eventually cause the whole VA to collapse. Got it. So. And 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 just to and we we have a lot to get to, sure. but I'm very interested in this. When you talk about 2006 as the beginning point of, of of things moving forward, how much of that was just that? Obviously, we hadn't we'd had the the Gulf War in in 1990 90, right. but that was fairly quick uh, for the U.S. Right. Uh, low number of casualties, et cetera. How much of that was just that we hadn't had a major war, so we just did weren't spending enough money on the VA versus structural reforms that it just wasn't kind of set up right? Well, in 2006, what happened was there was a, a huge surge in political activism by veterans that were returning from the war, both you know in the anti-war movement, but as well as like vet- young veterans standing up for themselves, which created a lot of pressure on Congress to add more money and brought, a, brought around the modern GI Bill which was very, very important to us, something that I, that I worked on as an activist, um, as a veteran activist. Um, that's basically where the, where the start uh, happened. The reason the VA was not ready for us is because President Bush and Donald Rumsfeld, and in general, was trying, they tried to have a war on the cheap. Uh, you know, if you remember, they actually had a tax cut in the middle of a war, which was like unprecedented. Mm-hmm. They did it. Uh, and they thought the same thing was going to happen with the VA uh, uh, when these veterans started returning. Uh, and fact is, you know, the VA was having problems before that. Uh, now you have a huge surge of veterans starting to return, also looking for services, and that was just a recipe for disaster. Got it. So let's. Wanna, I want to shift gear here, and I hope that I hope sure. the shift isn't too abrupt for our for our listeners. But now you're in Congress. Uh, you you're in your second term. Uh, you have. We have this midterm election coming right. up in God. I guess it's only like six months now or seven months. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> knocking on wood. Yeah, knocking yeah. on wood. Don't I'm, take anything for granted. Yeah, I'm Catholic, so we knock on wood. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, okay, so and and there, uh, it looks um, a lot of very encouraging signs for yeah. for the Democrats. Uh, thank God, because the country is is in a a terrible situation with a. Terrible president. president. Yeah, yeah, terrible president. Terrible corrupt president. Yeah, yeah terrible corrupt president. And a Congress uh, that allows him to be a terrible corrupt yeah, president. Yeah, it's just no. I mean, well, Republican Congress. I want to make Republican clear. Congress. Yeah. Um, but even even for a it 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 has not been a given in in American history that a terrible corrupt president that even when his party controls Congress they would just you know defer quite right. this much. Okay. So uh, I know that uh, you are, you know, sp- going around, uh, traveling around the country, mm-hmm. uh, uh, working with, with candidates who might right. come in on the, on, in a new, um, new Congress next year. Now, tell us, first of all, we talked about this, uh, a while back when, when when we spoke, you have real questions about how the Democratic Party today is being run mm-hmm. and the leadership in the House of Representatives. What, what's the what's the story there? What's the problem with with uh, the current leadership of the Democratic Party, particularly the leadership in the House of Representatives? Well, and I, you know, and I made I was very clear, especially after the last election, that I thought we needed a new leadership. I, I my choice did not win. Uh, you know, and that's why I'm. I, I hope that uh, Leader Pelosi is successful. I want us to win back the House. Uh, I think, and I've made it very clear: if we don't win back the House, then we need to have new leadership. Uh, in the meantime, uh, I do believe it's important that we actually are having smart policy uh, agendas, smart political moves to make sure that we take back the House. I think that there's been lost opportunities when it comes to these budget negotiations, uh, where I think we've given away too much. Uh, where I think that we haven't actually done enough to actually um, animate uh, the base. Uh, and I think it could be uh, – I think there's where we could have had better improvement. And in the future, 
uh, should we, especially we take back the House. I expect us to actually do that. I don't. I, I think we we now have come to the era. We should understand that we can no longer just be a party of the uh, you know just passing some budgets and not having any true progressive agenda. Any any true progressive wins. Right, the fact that we don't pass even simple things like student loan reform, we don't make that part of our our, our must pass uh, legislation in order to pass the omnibus. All these kinds of things, I think, that could really help, you know, uh, shore up our base, but also actually change the the true economic lives of a lot of people in this country. We we just keep missing, and I think it hurts. So we had okay. So there was uh, a couple different confrontations at the beginning of this calendar year between. Uh, I mean, it's almost hard to say like the the Democrats because they don't they're not right. controlling anything, uh, but to pass budgets, keep the government right. open, blah 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 blah. So we know, I think most of our readers they've they uh, follow the news pretty closely. They have a, a general sense of what happened there. There was that very brief shutdown right. that was that was kind of supposed to be about DACA, and then kind of wasn't didn't happen. Right. So okay, you 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 are the speaker of of counterfactual. Right. This is happening. You're the Speaker of the House, a Democratic majority in the House. Let's even throw in a uh, 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 Democratic majority in the Senate. You're in a face-off with a President Trump. How would you have handled it? Had we actually? Oh wait, were we, are we in leadership? Do we actually have the full? Do we have? Well, enough? Let me I, <laughs> let me back up. My counterfactual is too is too weird. You're you are the minority leader. Oh, minority leader. Yeah, you're you're in Pelosi's place that she sure. she was in a couple months ago. How would you have handled it differently? Uh, number one, I would have done uh, almost the same thing, except I would have added a couple things. I would have uh, demanded a prescription drug uh, competition. Um, I would have uh, demanded the uh, uh, closing the carry interest loophole. These are two things that the president talked about during his uh, election cycle. Uh, DACA. Uh, and send that over to him, uh, and as must pass, and then let him uh, reject uh, all three. And let's say he rejects all three, uh, you know, you basically prove now that the person, this president that you elected, who said he was going to do the following three things, protect DACA, uh, deal with com- you know, prescription drug medicine, and close carry uh, interest loophole, was lying. So you actually have a way to actually go after this guy. You actually start eroding his base. Now, let's say he comes back and says, well, I'm rejecting this because of DACA. All right, fine. Send it back. Send it back with prescription cru- uh, competition prescription cru- uh, prescriptions uh, and, and then carry into Luso. And then, again, challenge him to do that. By so do- make him sort of make the argument on each one right. individually, basically. Right. Right. Correct. And then also tear him apart from the, the Trump base. Uh, you know, they – it, you know, that you have a certain amount of that base that is winnable. I don't think we have to devote our whole time as Democrats to try to get them back. But this president never is going to sign anything that had to do with prescription costs. But right. we need to prove it. We need right. to prove that this guy is an outright liar and a fraud. And the way you do that is you sh- you show that the Democrats are actually fighting for you, and this guy just lied to you the whole time. So the fact that the fact that what what you were describing did not happen. You know the people uh, in, 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 in the leadership of the House. And then th- there's the formal leadership, but then there's all the yeah. sort of informal stakeholders in the Democratic Party and so forth. Is the fact that that does not happen, is that a matter of ideology? Is it a matter of temperament? Is it a matter of just, just having a bad strategy? What yeah, are... I think it's an issue. It's, it's a combination of temperament and bad strategy. The temperament of our leadership in the, in the House is to, for the – for the first objective is to keep government open, right? Not to do better for working class Americans, right? So sort of like a a, a, a hyper institutionalist correct attitude, right? Okay. And so, in my belief is, you know, we need to first figure out how we're going to make the life of every American better every day, and and we have to figure out the policy goals of how to do that. And part of that is potentially getting to a standoff that will, in the end, result, you know, someone having lower prescription costs or someone having lower healthcare costs. Uh, not you know keeping the institutional idea that Democrats have to always keep government open, which is by the way totally weaponized against us every time. Mm-hmm. Republicans mm-hmm. know that you know, especially among in this leadership, that it is their gut instinct uh, to actually keep government open. So they use that as leverage. Right. Right. Okay. Now I'm interested that that you say they you didn't say ideology. So in 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 your mind that the difference isn't so much the ideological differences between different parts of the party, even though obviously we know those exist to a degree, Correct. it's more of a 
temperamental thing, kind of the focus. Right. Do, do you think there's a, there's a constant debate among Democrats with uh, some people making the argument similar to what you have just made that if you you need to basically have fights on key issues of principle or issues of policy, basically, kind of like we're going to fight over this and we are going to, you know, kind of go to the mat and that's how we are going to advance our, both advance our agenda, do more thing, create more positive things for the American people, but also win elections. Right. And then there is another group that basically says, yeah, that sounds great, but you're going to get this part of the coalition cleaved off. Uh, you're going to get these 30-second ads, all these kind of, you know, a, right. a more cautious approach. Why is the second group wrong? Well, the, the reason the second group is wrong is because you're going to get those 30-second ads no matter what. You could be the most moderate Democrat. If, you are, uh, if your district is suddenly a swing district, you are Stalin. Right. right. <laughs> so, like, it doesn't matter, like, how moderate you are. At the end of the day, what we should be focusing on is trying to make the everyday life of Americans better. Uh, so, you know, this idea that we have to keep our moderate ourselves because that'll somehow in the end get us elected so that way we could pass moderate legislation doesn't really do anything. Makes zero so sense. It's self defeating, basically. Yeah, it's self defeating. Yeah. And you're not exciting anybody. You're basically just giving up, you know, ideological, uh, the, 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 the battlefield of ideas. Uh, you know, to basic status quo or or even the other side. Uh, and again, from just a purely purely political standpoint, it doesn't matter what you do. The Cook brothers see that you're weak, they're going to go after you. It doesn't matter how moderate you are. If they have an opportunity to beat you, they're going to use everything they can and they're going to look at every little vote and they're just going to twist it to make you look like a raging liberal. When in the end, you should just vote to help make sure that you're doing the right things for your constituents. Yes. So let me ask you something about a story that's been in the news, the, you know, the caravan heading towards the United States that President Trump has made a big deal of. As someone who represents Arizona, I mean, what's your take on him, you know, making this an issue in an election year? And what are the, you know, what do, what do your constituents in Arizona think of, you know, that kind of rhetoric and just whipping things that up? That kind like of that? politics, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, in Arizona, we've been used to this, you know, BS for so long. Anytime the Republicans aren't doing well politically, they just try to drag out the first brown person they can uh, and basically, you know, cause hysteria around it. Uh, this was done, you know, whether it was Sheriff George Pio, Jan Brewer. Now you see the president doing it. So in Arizona, it's really not that big of a deal just because, again, we are so used to this. Well, right? it's kind of what I meant about Arizona presaging. Yeah. Kind of wherever the whole country is Arizona now. Exactly. Basically. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and now we're actually coming out of that because we were so used to it. And we right. realized that the politics of it brings you nothing. Uh, and the, what the president is doing is basically he's stoking up fear over a caravan that is mostly not going to make it to the United States. Uh, if they make it to the border, they're going to turn themselves in. Uh, and no one's, you know, the, the, the whole point that these actors are trying to do is to bring attention to the crisis of refugees. And Fox News and the president are actually bringing that attention to them, but then also using it to stoke this kind of gut fear of people. The other thing that I just don't get is if you actually, the border is not as dangerous as people say it is. If you if you're actually live on the border, unlike Donald Trump, who only obsesses about the border, <laughs> um, you would understand this. But number two, using National Guardsmen is not actually good border security. It's it's basically good border politics because then you get to like brag to you guys like, well, I put troops on the border. These guys aren't going to be able to have arresting powers. They're not going to be able to carry weapons. Mostly they're going to be looking at monitors and having a cell phone and calling the border patrol, right? It is more expensive doing that than actually just hiring more border patrol, uh, uh, more border patrol or more customs. Is, is even more border patrol officers necessary at this point? The, the, the number, I mean, obviously yeah. it's, you can, Come at it from from different ways, but the 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 numbers both of people coming across the border, right. then they have like apprehensions numbers. They're all historically low. Maybe have bumped up a little, you know, in the right. last month or so, but but dramatically lower than it was ten years ago. So I guess y you wouldn't necessarily be saying. I mean, it might be more cost effective, but that doesn't mean that we actually well, need to hire more. Well, I mean, if you if you ask me where to hire, it'd actually be customs officers because our biggest danger are the uh, drugs that come over the border. But most of the drugs that come over the border aren't hauled by a human being. They're hauled in a truck. 
and we don't have enough custom officers or even custom uh, ports to actually handle all that load coming through. But that's not sexy. That's the problem. What's, what's sexy is having a border patrol guard in the middle of the desert instead of having a customs officer at a port in the middle of a city, which is the right thing to do. And so the point is when, you, when you're bringing uh, drugs across in, in a truck – you're not like out in the middle of nowhere. You're coming through a border entry. Yeah, you're it's coming just through. that you don't have enough people to search every truck. Right. You're going through Tijuana. You're Got going it. through Nogales. You're going through one of the one of these like cities. But again, in the president's mind, when he's trying to sell this to like Midwestern Americans that have never been to the border, it's more sexy to sell like a guy with a gun in the middle of the desert, where he's likely not going to apprehend anybody. Then where you're actually going to apprehend somebody, which is the guy who is actually driving a truck, or a big rig over the over the border, and it's probably a custom officer with a dog catching the guy. There's right. not, and there's nothing dramatic about it. You know, right, they just right, guy right. goes to jail and that's it, right? Well, it, yeah, it, no, we, I mean border. You know, national guard at the border makes for good headlines and yeah. scary TV coverage. Well, and, uh, and even all just kind of like you know, like you know, he's basically saying like you know, fuck civilian border patrol, man. I'm sending the. I'm sending the military. Yeah, exactly. Like, right, but that they, sounds like you they, know hardcore. Right, but they suck at that. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, like, they, like, like people that are good are the, the border patrol knows how to capture, arrest, uh, investigate people. Some of these national guardsmen may be good at this. Maybe they have civilian experience, especially police officers. But the majority of them are not going to be trained in this. And, and, it's actually, and the point and, is, they're not allowed to arrest. Right. Correct. They're, they're, as a, yeah. Not, I guess it's not a constitutional matter, but it's this law, the Posse Comitatus Act. From right, like and we're not going to – and, and the only way you get that is you have Congress uh, change that, and that's – we're not going to change that. Right. So it seems clear that Trump is going to use immigration as like a big theme, big issue in the in the midterms. Like, you know, what do you think Democrats should respond to that with or what should the message be on the other side? Well, I mean, our message should be very simple. You know, you know, he's trying to scare you about immigration because he, he's trying to tell you that he's taking the jobs. Like – but it's not the immigrant that's taking the damn jobs. It's the fact that this president just gave Wall Street a huge amount of tax cuts. They're going to go and end up basically automating your business. So it's not like the Mexican come from Mexico City. It's the banker in New York City that's going to cost you your job, right? He wants to talk about drugs, right? It's not the drugs that are actually killing most of our Americans out through opioids. You know, it's not a guy named Chavez or Diaz or Gallego. No, it's like these pharmaceutical fucking – CEOs, pardon me, CEOs right? who, you know, who will go to chamber of commerce meetings and just got a huge tax cut from the president. They're the ones that are killing uh, most of our men right, men and women right now through opioid addiction. I was struck because he was on camera this morning and he, I, I don't remember his exact words, but the way he juxtaposed the issues, he was basically saying kind of like we're, we're, we're clamping down the border and so we're going to keep these opioid opioids out. Right. But again, the, the opioids in, in most cases are not they aren't just not coming in from Mexico they're not illegally produced at all they're no. they're produced in pharmaceutical factories they're 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 i mean it is a problem and they're abused but these are not contraband drugs they're no. they're they're abused prescriptions it is i mean it is you know white collar doctors getting people hooked and then you have white collar corporate criminals that are making a, a lot of money uh you know getting these people even more of their opioids and they get to walk around as if, you know, they're just good uh, corporate citizens when, in fact, you know, if they weren't licensed, they'd all be in jail right now. So let's talk specifically. 2018 election, uh, you are like a lot of members of the Democratic Caucus, I'm sure, are traveling, you know, traveling, uh, meeting with candidates, probably campaigning, probably uh, uh, fundraising for candidates in, in, in different districts. What's the strategy? What is the, what is the strategy that allows the Democrats to take control? Of, let's not set aside the Senate for now. Take control of the House and at least have some counterforce to Donald Trump in 2019. What is the approach? What what well, should Democratic just, candidates be doing? Well, that's actually what you just mentioned. We are the counterforce, and we have to we have to remind people that you know there's there's something wrong that's going that's happening right now in our democracy, and and people feel it. They may not be able to actually like. Put it into words, but Americans feel that there is something not right, and they feel that there needs to be a balance to it. And we are that balance, right? Because the Republicans aren't doing it, right? Paul Ryan has could not find his spine even if I showed it to him, right? You know, the the the, the checks and balances are gone. Uh, so the only way you have a check and a balance is you put Democrats in control of the House, and we have to remind them, right? We're the ones that stood up against this horrible tax cut that no one likes anymore, right? I mean, they're trying to sell this to Americans every day, 
right? But you cannot lie to somebody's paycheck. You could lie. Politicians could try lying to other reporters. They could lie to themselves. But Americans aren't buying it because you cannot lie when somebody owns up their paycheck. They know it. They feel it. Especially when they, they put that into the checking account and they realize that there ain't, there ain't nothing different. Right, right. And, the, and even worse than that, they know there ain't nothing different, but they do know that their neighbor, who is really, really rich, got something that they did not get. So it doesn't matter how hard you sell it, they're just, they ain't going to buy it. Right. right. But we're the ones that said that we shouldn't have done that. We're the ones that would have actually given either, well, first of all, not done it, but actually if we're going to do it, we would have done a real middle class tax cut. We're the ones that are actually going to stop the Russians from interfering in our elections instead of trying to kiss their ass like this president is. You know, you know, we're the ones that are trying to save health care instead of trying to increase the premiums. You know, this goes on and on and on. We are the check on the unchecked power of this president. But so because I know that uh, a lot there, there's a debate within the Democratic Party that some people say, well, you know, it can't just be anti-Trump. We have to have a positive agenda. And I see you're saying both there, but yeah. it does sound like you're saying sort of the organizing principle of 2018 for Democrats is to say someone has to right. put limits on this guy. For positive reasons. Right, right exactly. But right. but so that, okay, so so am I characterizing you right? Like you you talk about we're the ones trying to advance the ball in healthcare. Right. We're the ones who- they Protect your middle class paycheck. All these kind of things. Yeah. But that the sort of the organizing principle is someone Stop. needs to balance this guy yeah, out. Someone 100%. needs to put some limits on him. Right. Go. Correct. Yeah. So, and, that, and I know there's people in politics like, well, you have to have you can't just be about Trump. Like, here's the thing I don't understand. Somehow it always worked for Republicans where they were anti-Democrat. Just about Obama. It's just about yeah, Obama. That's the Trump presidency. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. But the Democrats totally. come along and somehow we have to have this grandiose idea that is that is ignoring the the big fat elephant in the room, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. No, like it, you know, if we want to win, we have to give a reason for people to vote for us, and you you can't ignore, you know, that Trump is there and he is destroying you know American lives every day. And I know I hear this all the time, like, well, you know, we need to where, where is our great ideas? Like, yeah. I was actually thinking about this. Um, you know, I, I kind of came to a, at least political consciousness uh, around uh, Bill Clinton's time. Um, l- let me point out something to most uh, Americans. Tell me what you know about the contract for America. Uh, what, were mean, the, what were the principles of contract for America or contract with America? You know, it's, it's, it's I guess, what is it like? They were. It was a votes on serious, like term limit. It was, the, it was a bunch of of, of uh, gimmicks, basically. Gimmicks, it was like right. ten gimmicks, basically. But basically, I, but even basically, I don't. That's embarrassing. Yeah. I'm saying, hey, man, I'm yeah. pretty up on things. Yeah, yeah. I'm not your average American, and then I have no but idea. Basically, I can't remember but basically, it. it was like an an excuse to to rally against President Clinton. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. If you go to 2006, what was the what was the Democratic pitch? Uh, for us to take back the house in 2006. Anybody remember this? You know, it was the six for six. What was the six things? Oh my God, I don't even remember the six. I, I mean, here, here's my. It was, here, it, it was basically anti-Bush, right? Well, yeah. I mean, the thing, the 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 real pitch in 2006, and 2006 reminds me a lot of yeah. this year. Correct. It was basically. Everything is terrible. Everything is after. Everything we is need terrible. To, we need to change this. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And kind of like you know. Okay, American people, we're, we're going to give you a mulligan on on, on two thousand four. Right, <laughs> like you didn't, you know, you didn't, you didn't uh, send this guy packing. But like everything is effed. Uh, we've th- this this war is bleeding us dry. Right. There's lots of corruption. Yep. the economy is not terrible as it would be a couple years, you know, a couple but years it's not later. Moving. You're not moving forward, and kind of like something has to change and that was really that was the message and kind of like you know we're not gonna he tried to get rid of social security right i mean that that was basically the message everything is effed right here's your chance to sort of df it a little (laughs) correct (laughs) and then 2010 was like ostensibly about taxes but it's really against you know obama and obamacare right it was like what mitch mcconnell said right like immediately that he wanted to make Obama one-term president. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so and so you know now for some reason you know it's 2018. This is the most unpopular president in the history of the United States, the most corrupt president in the history of the United States. Uh, and then you have these pundits who are like, we want to hear your 10-point plan about what you would do. Not just be against this guy. This guy is the worst president ever. It's good enough to say we're going to protect you from the worst president ever in this country. Yeah. That is a good policy position. That is a positive policy position. I feel like we should be writing the mottos. <laughs> <Yeah. 'Cause laughs> is it now it's a better deal? Is that the Democrats' sort I, of I, slogan at the moment? You know, at a certain level, I my only sort of defense of that is that at some level it do, 
doesn't kind of matter what the slogan is. As long as it doesn't harm you, yes. Yes, exactly. First do no harm. Yeah, first do no harm. And and if you really pivot back to Trump is the worst ever and someone needs to protect us from Trump. Right. Okay. So now let's talk about – let's say that things go great for the Democratic Party and the country – and uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, we could, we need it. We We're need not, it. Yeah, yeah, we really need it. We don't, we don't need it for Democrats. We need it for the yeah, country. The That's country what matters. Really, yeah. I mean, it's a. I've been very struck in the last in the last number of months. You have various Republicans saying, uh, obviously not not most, but right. some like everybody needs to vote Demo- Democratic. Right. Not because you know I'm still a conservative, but right. we need to go on record saying we can't. Well, because, a, a country all, can't ha- function like this. Well, you, it could function like this if you have Republicans that could actually stand up to the president, but they they're afraid to. They can't right. do it. It's it's the thing that strikes me. What is really the sort of the ultimate tell is, you know, you you've got uh, some uh, uh, you know pro comprehensive immigration reform Republicans, but what really told me is it's on the tariffs and the trade war stuff. Republicans, certainly the, most of the Republicans yeah. on Capitol Hill, they hate this. They do not like this. And it actually matters to them. But well, like, it's still like, well, because this, they won't do anything. This actually affects their most important constituent money. Yeah. Yeah. Right? No, and that's they the could thing. Care, like, they could care less about the work. It's about the money. They could this care is less about they, Obamacare yeah, yeah. and DACA and all these kind of things. But it really told me a lot when even the things that the people who are writing their big checks are furious about, just like, oh, I don't like it either, but yeah. nothing we can do about it. Okay, so say uh, a great result. You've got a Democratic majority in the House that even has some decent numbers behind it. Yeah. When that happens, you are going to have inevitably more focus on the you know, different factions within the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. You have uh, I, I, Connor Lamb, the guy who was just elected uh, in Pennsylvania. You, you, you have uh, moderate, more kind of pro-business Democrats. Sure. You have uh, Democrats like, like yourself, more progressive, uh, more, I don't know, would you call yourself populist progressive? Populist progressive, yeah. Yeah, okay. How, do, how, does, that, how does that play out? I mean, well, let me, let, me, let, me, let me rephrase that. Every political party has different factions in it. Of course. Um, and the issue in most cases is not that one destroys the other, but you find ways that you're mainly working together and can move to, an agenda. To coexist. Yeah. yeah. How does that happen in 2019, 2020? What are the things that people can work on together? Where right. are their cleavages? Okay. Well, first of all, it depends what's happening in the Senate, right? We're, we, we're not going to be passing, I think, symbolic laws that aren't going to go anywhere uh, because I think then it's just – you're, you're just going to get frustrated. But where you do find yourself, I think, working together are kind of the core tenets of the democratic slash progressive uh, movement, right? Number one, civil rights. You know, I think we could easily uh, uh, get our party together to pass uh, the modern uh, Voting Rights Act, right? Uh, pass anti-gerrymandering laws. Pass anti-big uh, uh, money uh, laws in, in, in politics uh, or dark money in politics, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Try to you know, and on the Senate side, even there's a Republican basically challenge them to you know, you know, stop these very popular uh, laws that I think are bipartisan. Uh, I think you could do a lot of things around healthcare. I think we could get within our party uh, enough support to drop, maybe not get Medicare for all, but drop Medicare eligibility to 55. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that would get a lot of people excited uh, in this country, and that probably forced the hand of Republicans to actually do p- put an up or down vote in the Senate. Um, or at some other point, try to pass it through must uh, must pass legislation. Let me ask you because um, l- let's say hypothetically there's Democratic majority after this election, then you're going into the next presidential election. We're Starts sort of, right away, yeah. Right, yeah. where kind of everything's on the table. Right, and some version of single payer health care, Medicare for all, is going to be a big, big part of the Democratic agenda. But it'll also be. There, there, will, there will definitely be some players in the Democratic Party who want to kind of at least ride the brakes a little in, uh-huh. in that direction. Where does that fit into your vision of the Democratic agenda? Uh, look, I think if you are one of these political analysts that somehow believe that we're going to win the next election without talking about health care 
and seriously talking about some level of universal health care, you're naive and out of place and should probably be put out to pasture. Those days are done. They're gone. You know, you, even if you saw some of the people that were supporting uh, President uh, Trump, uh, some of them were supporting them because they wanted to be on Medicaid versus their friends that mm-hmm. you know that weren't or that were. Right. right. right? Um, look, we could we could figure out. You know, I, I can't remember. I think it was a, it's a Chinese saying like, you know, don't care the color of the of the cat, just catch the mouse. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing when it comes to healthcare. Do we have universal healthcare? Is it bringing down? Is it bringing lower co- healthcare costs? Are people not going bankrupt before because of, uh, you know, healthcare uh, or uh, medical bills? You know, that's what we need to be focusing on. Uh, I think the Democrats, if you're running for president, you think you can run uh, for president without endorsing some level of universal health care. I think you're going to find yourself quickly, uh, you know, walking out of Iowa. So the, the I guess how I would characterize this is that certainly with President Trump in office, everybody wants to defend Obamacare, want to keep, you know. Yeah, I don't think that's, it. that's not going to be enough. Right, exactly. But yeah. you're saying that is that once it is what do you want, not just what are you trying to defend. Correct. That. Obamacare was great, but that's we've kind of been there and done that, and right. it's the next step. It's the next step really, because because yeah. even if you do Obamacare again, they're going to come back and take it again. So you you know at this point, why are we even compromising? Like let's just go all the way because it's it would be harder for them to take away uh, universal health care than it is to Obamacare, right? Had we had some of universal health care and the Republicans had gotten uh, into power, right. their actions I think would have gone would have failed because then everybody would have felt it. Right. right. Instead of this hybrid system that we have right now. Exactly. Exactly. So what is okay? So tell us about your district, seventh district so, of Arizona. So congressional district. Well, it is the third youngest district uh, in the country. Average age is uh, twenty eight. It is a district that probably has a lot of wage disparity. We have a lot of uh, really wealthy people, but we have a lot, a lot of poor people. Um, it is uh, about sixty percent Latino. Um, it uh, uh, has even rural areas to it. Uh, not, not that much anymore, but it's still out there. We still have dairy farms and things like that. Um, it, but it is the kind of a, a good microcosm of, of the country. You know, we have heavy industry. We have uh, finance. We have even the creative portions of it. And for those that don't know, geographically, like what is it? What city? Like where, yeah. is, it, where is it based in the Mostly state? it's central Phoenix. Uh, then we have uh, some great cities uh, also attached to uh, my district, which is Guadalupe. Uh, the city of Tolleson and Glendale, and parts of Glendale. So, okay. So here's here's my here's the, my final question. Uh, we have a lot of a lot of people around the country right now. A lot of them Democrats, not all Democrats, who are very focused on 2018. They know what is at stake. Right. They want to be involved. They want to be. They don't want to. They don't want to wake up the day after election day and and feel I didn't do enough. Right. What should people be doing? Right now, you should you know uh, find the nearest competitive district and get involved. Uh, and what does that mean for people who have not been involved in a campaign before? That, what does that mean? It, it means you. It, it could mean anything. It depends what what you're able to do. Whether it's getting your friends together and donating to that person. Any amount of money helps. Whether it's you, you know, if you live in that district, just having a coffee party, inviting the candidate over, inviting all, you know, all your neighbors, make sure they know about them. Or if you feel more comfortable going down there, getting on the campaign, getting on the phones, going door to door, being a, however helpful uh, in whatever manner you can uh, to that campaign, specifically Senate races and congressional races. And if you don't have that, then look for the nearest race. Uh, period, school board race, state, state state rep race. And actually, for a lot of these states, you know, state reps and state senate races are going to be really important and, and, and governor's races. So and Going into the yeah. redistricting in 2020 and yeah. so on and so forth. And, I mean, I'll give you, you – know, the one thing that we were – you know, in the Marines, we, we learn a lot. But one of the things that uh, I was told is if you're ever in a, you know, in a fight, the most important thing is just to find somebody and punch them. Right, <laughs> so you don't do that here. I'm not. Well, yeah, we're not talking we're not, about. Yeah, this is this is this is a metaphor. It's a metaphor. Yeah, I don't need you to find a Republican and punch him. What I need you to do is find a Republican and go work against them. Right, and and make an example uh, of 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 them. And when when people want to know why did you go work against that Republican, you did it because Republicans do not deserve to govern. They have abused the American uh, our American system, and we needed to teach him a lesson to put a check on this president. When you say when you say you know give money if 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 you can, I think I think a lot of people don't necess- they they feel a lot of anxiety that they don't know 
how to contribute effectively. Mm -hmm. And let's say someone who maybe over the course of the cycle can contribute two or three hundred dollars. Right. Right. It's most people actually. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Should they give to a party committee? Should they just give it all to one person? What is from being an elected official? What if if I have three hundred dollars that I can divvy around over the right. next six or seven months? What's the best strategy? What's the what is the way to to have the most effect to that money, hard earned money that I want to put where my values are? I would say first thing I do, you have to understand what is important to you. Right. So if you want to see Congress in the hand of Democrats, then you should go and find who are the top 10 Democrats likely to swing a district back. Right. So we have, you know, in the Democratic Party, we have what's called the red to blue. Uh, these are candidates that are trying to uh, take out Republican incumbents. Uh, you should go find out who the candidates are. Look at their issues. See who do you align with and send a couple of them um, your 20 to 40 dollars each. That's the way that these candidates can win because any money that a candidate gets, uh, they get to use directly versus the Republican Party is going to be – they're so screwed that they're going to be relying on like independent expenditure money and it doesn't go as far because a, a Democrat – has to be used indirectly. It has to be used like indirectly. Right. They don't get a preferable buying rates, all these kinds of things. So for example, Connor Lamb uh, was way outraised by the Republican uh, Party, right. not the actual candidate. And all the Koch brother backed in uh, groups, but he ended up being competitive in terms of ad ad buying time uh, on TV because he got prefer preferable rates as a candidate himself versus the other uh, uh, you know independent expenditures. Right, basically had to like almost pay three times the rate for that same. That's ad. interesting. That's interesting. So. Um and when you say like red to blue, I guess I guess that list is is that made by the D trip or the it's DM? made by the D trip, right? Yeah. But so the point is is that that identifies some 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 potential swings, right? But you can Google that and look it up, and then right. you can donate directly. You don't you, have to because everybody's you know do I donate to the D trip? No, we'll you could donate stuff, directly yeah. to these guys, uh, these guys and women. Uh, but and, it, and, but but you, the, I'm saying go to the website to look who they are, and then. But yes. it is effective for that. It's a good. It's a good way 100%. to kind of winnow down. Like, yep. okay, here's thirty. You know, or I guess it's yep. more than thirty. But here are the seats. I'm gonna. I'm gonna research these ones, and there's a good exactly. place to start. Exactly. And then also look at. You know, for, I'm part of the Progressive Caucus. Uh, look at who the Progressive Caucus is endorsed. See, see if there if there's any good candidates you want there, and and if they're in swing districts. I mean, I think that's also a really good uh, option. Uh, and then there's you know other groups like PCC, Progressive Change Committee. Uh, uh, all these kinds of things, I think that would all these other areas, I think they'd be good places and good resources. So I guess possibly like the 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 red to blue list, good place to start. Right. And then you look up who the Progressive Caucus recommends, right. sort of lay them on each Correct. other, and, yes. and then get a get a good and then, list. And look, and and we, but we are a, a big tent. The most important vote is to make sure uh, that whether you're a Democrat, whether you're a Blue Dog, whether you're a New Dem, or uh, in the Progressive Caucus, the most important vote is: Are you going to vote for a Democratic leader? Right. We can fight. We can all fight each other on ideology once we get there. But let's all get there first. Right. right. And be controlling the house to have something to fight over. Exactly. As yes. opposed to yeah. Being, yeah, yeah. Having no power yeah. at all. I, I, under, I understand a lot of people have 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 issues with blue da, blue dogs and new dams. And I totally get that. But we we can have those fights once we have power. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. right. Uh, Ruben Gallego. Thank you so much. Uh, I, I really enjoyed this. And I know that people are, you know, everybody's pumped up. And I think it's it's almost it's like the election version of like FOMO, right? You don't want to <laughs> yeah, exactly, you don't yeah. feel like you didn't do what what was most effective. So thank you very much, really appreciate it. You know, I, I have uh, gonna we're gonna do another really uh, a, a gear shift here. Um, I want to remind everybody that this episode of the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com. You can purchase some right now with promo code. TPM. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you. And Thank we'll you talk guys. to you uh, next week. See you next week. Awesome.